Hello, welcome to Loud in the Words, about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. A warm welcome to Katerina Hajimathu and René Luthera from the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex. We're talking in this episode about ethics and criminology, migration, trafficking, the rise of domestic violence and the gradual changes in policy and practice. René, you both work in those parts of modern life where people daily are at risk, um, advantages are taken, environments are hostile, institutions weak and lapsing, a important and difficult territory. So could you just start us off with a summary of your work and priorities? Um, René, why don't you have a go first? Thanks. Uh, yeah, my name is René and um, I um, work really on migration issues very broadly. Um, I'm interested in how immigrants come to the UK and also in other countries, how they get on, the situations they face. More specifically, my work uh, with a lot of collaborators is looking at how um, immigrants and their descendants, who also tend to be ethnic and racial minorities, deal with harassment in the UK and work and, and on the streets uh, of British life. Lovely, great. cat. Hi, I'm Kat. Um, I'm interested in ethics. I'm a philosopher originally, and especially ethical dilemmas police face. Part of my work involves talking to police uh, to help them work through some of those dilemmas. And I'm really interested in particular in police use of technologies and data. And one of my priorities recently is looking at how police can use their massive data systems to try and help and protect victims of domestic abuse. Okay, so we've got the, the, the individuals who are part of kind of systems, migrants, um, people suffering from domestic abuse or other advantages taken and, and systems of policing justice. So when you're working with police authorities, Kat, and you're trying to kind of work on the ethics and the kind of morals of the systems, the, the, those kind of underlying values that determine the approaches that people take, um, paint us a picture of how you're working with them on how colleagues have worked to try to to shift and pivot the kind of the the norms a little bit. I mean, no system's going to be perfect, but it can be better than it was. It's it's perhaps the starting point. Yeah, well, it's a relatively new development in the UK, but there there are certain or well, police is a is a very very hierarchical organisation, and that's whether you're talking about a local police force or whether you're talking about the National Crime Agency, which is our version of the FBI. You know, it's the national policing organisation that only deals with serious and organised crime, and. It's very difficult for police to have open and frank discussions about sensitive issues with people outside of the organisation. They are very much scrutinised, especially by uh, civil liberties organisations who I think are doing a great job, but they have a certain agenda to push. And so it's very difficult for police to, when they're making a decision, for example, about where to use um, uh, facial recognition technology, whether to go undercover uh, on the dark net to penetrate a child sexual abuse ring. I mean, that involves pretending to be and engaging in some activities around child sexual abuse. So when they have to make these kinds of decisions, who do they talk to? If they only talk to each other, 
they really risk becoming institutionalised, out of touch with the public public values and norms and making decisions that uh, with the test of time won't stand uh, public legitimacy and, and they'll be criticised for and we have seen you know I don't I'm sure you've got many examples in your mind already about police scandals but we can just think about the undercover policing scandal here in the UK it was recently revealed that police in the 1960s 70s and 80s had uh, infiltrated entirely peaceful environmental groups local green groups campaigning for local rivers saving um, anim- a tree or, uh, yes, yes, or keeping a path rights, open or whatever yeah, yep. animal rights groups left wing groups and they had put undercover police officers deep in these groups for decades these officers had had relationships with women some of them had had children with women under whilst undercover um, and even married them and these were women who had never been ever suspective of any kind of criminality whatsoever. So there's drift in policing and uh, and if there's no external scrutiny, it, it, the drift can turn into rot. So one thing that police organisations are doing at the moment in the UK is setting up independent committees who are security vetted. That means that the people who sit on these committees have had checks on their background, on their financial situation, to make sure that sensitive information can be shared with them safely. And I'm part of a a number of these committees. And here, really, the idea is for police to feel safe, to bring really thorny dilemmas to the table and have an external view, a critical, friendly, critical view. Now, one might ask, is this just a fig leaf? Um, Sometimes it can be. And I I have left groups where that has been the case before. Um, But sometimes it really can make a difference. And... I don't think it's it's the only thing police need, but it, it's certainly one piece of the puzzle in helping um, police to check themselves as they go about their very high stakes, risky and dangerous work. So it is about values, the core values, but also creating the context where different voices can be heard. Your voices, yep. other, other voices. Mm. So even just hearing... Um, uh, we think or the evidence shows us that this is right and that's not so good and you should think about this. That can be enough, especially if it's coming from a, a known person who's, who's kind of within the system, as it were. That can change a little bit how they are responding. Yeah, um, this was really interesting to me. Uh, did Where are the... Do you have any sense of which kinds of police departments are more likely to undertake these measures? And, like, why, yeah, why would they be more willing or less willing to do that? Because it seems like a really great move, actually. I think it really depends on the leadership of the organisation. So the National Crime Agency has uh, one of these uh, one of these groups. Actually, HMRC, our tax authority in the UK, uh, has recently set up one of these groups because more and more they deal with really sensitive data um, of millions of people and they have enforcement. They have powers, just like police, to arrest people, to knock down doors, to you know, freeze people's bank accounts, take away their cars and houses. Uh, and they're also moving into the AI area. So there there are particular risks around, you know, bias and, and certain ethnic groups and so on. But I do think it's down to the leadership, whether the leadership is genuinely open to this kind of thing. It is being recommended at a national level by our policing ombudsman in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting in in both of the 
both of your areas of work and the kind of broader area, the, is there sometimes a, a kind of research conflict or contradiction in as much as you're going to come to know stuff in finding out how the world works and trying to kind of make nudges and changes that you might not be able to talk about in other kind of contexts that you might not be able to write about directly. Um, uh, clearly, that might be the case with individual cases of domestic abuse. Uh, you've got to protect sources. You've got to protect people for, for the right reasons. But also, there may be broader contradictions that you kind of just come to know things that you can't particularly share. Um, but, you, I mean, you can talk as a generality. You know, I've, I've seen this kind of context. Does that, does that, and in other words, that's the kind of the morals and ethics of your own practice. I mean, yeah, I think because what we study is so politicized, um, it's difficult because, yeah, you have to think about how findings that you publish will be taken on and can be used against communities that you're working with. Um, and it's difficult cause, because I think as, science, as social scientists, we we want to sort of adhere to the truth and, and disseminate information, and that's, I think, a big part of what we do. But you you have to recognize the political context that you're working in. And so, yeah, there there are times where one is needing to be careful, basically, about what one says. That's quite banal, what I'm saying, but I think that is, yeah, I think it does come up. I'd, I'd be really interested to hear, are there any experiences that you had on, a, on particular findings that you were worried about or well because I, so I do quantitative research um, and so sometimes so actually I mean this is I think this is something that you know for instance that I have published but was tricky because so I work with data that, sh that sort of ask people about their experiences of harassment for instance and actually uh, white men experience very high, very high levels of harassment especially physical violence um, the, the fact that white men experience higher risks of physical violence to that be mean that you know ethnic minorities are not targeted no it doesn't mean that because they're they experience violence for other reasons and white men are more likely to for instance participate in the nighttime economy to be out in the streets to be in brawls so you can't and with quantitative data i don't know always why somebody screamed at you or hit you i only know that you say that somebody hits you um and so it's you know, it's tricky because do you, do you then, if you're writing a paper about ethnic and minority experience, do you then say, well, but actually ethnic minorities experience this less? No, of course you don't want to say that because that could then be taken, oh, well, they don't need special protections, but they do, especially when they, you know, have racial slurs screamed at them. Mm. It's a different type of thing, but these kinds of um, finer points sometimes get lost um, when you are, you know, publishing a one-page press brief, mm. right? So, anyways... That's yeah. really interesting. So you do need to think about how these will be taken, um, uh, of course. Yeah. You know, and, and if we're dealing with the realities of of people's lives and the conflicts over resources and identity, very often, um, uh, and yeah. um, uh, existing understandings or misunderstandings that, for example, certain people suffer from from yeah. violence and harassment, and therefore other people don't. But actually. 
this is something that's much broader. Is it broader than we think? Well, I think it's difficult also because it's about so so part of part of the research that we've done finds that even though um, white men experience har- harassment more, they fear it less. So f- especially women, and I'm thinking also of your work about mm-hmm. women's experiences. So if women are afraid and are not being in public spaces, then then they're not going to be attacked as much. So you have to somehow adjust for that when you give like the probability of being harassed. How do you adjust for for opportunities of harassment, for instance, and so it it is like it's a again it's a complex picture, and um, yeah, that's really interesting because a, a dilemma I've had recently. So uh, with with a colleague in computer science, we recently completed a project which took all all of the last five years of police data from Essex on perpetrators of domestic abuse and it tried to look at looked at 12 different features or bits of knowledge we had about these perpetrators and uh, tried to profile them or cluster them using machine learning techniques Mm. and one of the clusters that we discovered was female perpetrators now, this was only about 13%, 12 to 13% of all of the police data. As, as you would expect, about 45% of the data was what you think about when you think of domestic abuse. It was men, white English men, abusing females, using violence, repeat abuse, and many victims, so serial abuse. But we had a number of other clusters that were kind of less in the public consciousness. And there's this question. So we have female-on-male intimate partner violence. It's not very it's not very violent um, compared to other kinds of, of profiles. Uh, not very many victims. And about 80% of those women are also in the system as victims. So there's, a, there's an overlap. There's a crossover between suspect and victim. Now... There is almost no research on female perpetrators or women who are recorded as perpetrators in police data of domestic abuse, let alone the kind of data we might find from, you know, uh, health or social services or something like that. And there is more and more in the UK at the moment investment in programmes and support for people who are using abuse. So trying to help people reform and rehabilitate and stop abusing their partners, basically. There's almost nothing for women. So I was talking to a local provider of perpetrator services in Essex. She runs a service where it's voluntary. You know, you can call up if you're worried about your behaviour and they can put you in a group programme or a one-to-one programme. And she said... I have a real problem because there are women coming to me and I don't I don't have any research I don't have any knowledge on what might work with them what might not what typologies of female abuse are what the particular risk factors I should be looking out for are she said I'm just you know I'm just winging it when I have these women they're very different to the men who show up but we need research in this area Where's the dilemma? Well, the dilemma is that there will be a backlash. If I'm quite tempted to apply for funding to do some real research and try and understand women who abuse their partners, what's going on there? Is it just resistance of an abusive partner? Is it um, is knock it on effect? Knock on effect. Them, yeah. But in order to do that, I'll have to meet with some serious opposition of why are you diverting money that could go to protecting women 
to um, to to actually demonising females or but if you speak to this this woman whose life is dedicated to working with perpetrators she said we are letting women perpetrators down by having nothing for them and probation also offer them nothing so I'm I'm in a similar kind of mm. dilemma right now and I I haven't decided uh, what I'm going to do how many enemies I'm prepared to make <laughs> yeah well I suppose I suppose if you were coming from the end point of we're trying to do something to make things better in some kind of way to make some sort of improvement the example of the perpetrator service you you would be saying here's a service that although it's voluntary to get to that point presumably we know something about the the likely outcomes if people stick with it like aa or other kinds of voluntary programs that people can join you can kind of say, well, half the people, 80% of the people after a certain period of time will have made some some kind of changes that we might consider to be improvements. So if you had that, you would be able to say, well, therefore, this should be available to anybody. Yeah. But, but you're going to need men and women in different groups, presumably. Absolutely. Kind of and you, you can say to people, if you're if you're if you're a victim of abuse, we can help your partner. Uh, you can say to people, if you're worried mm. about behaviour, we can help you and we can prove, we can show you that actually we have helped people before and this is going to take you somewhere. Yeah. So I'm kind of interested in how you how that kind of support scales up into actions and movements. I mean, we've seen um, in this kind of latter part of 2022 amazing social action in Iran, for example, mm. um, led by women on the streets, mm. subject to visible kind of violent action. And yet that social change has taken them into a kind of um, a space where they're supporting each other. So I wonder about that, that kind of those relations of trust and reciprocity that can come from bringing people together to do things in a different kind of way. It's amazing. I, I think the, the, the solidarity and you see the the risks people will take for their freedom and in fact i wanted to ask you renee whether uh, whether women fleeing iran right now would be eligible for asylum is is the situation something that and are there do you know if there are women who are leaving very oppressive regimes i mean gen oppressive in a gender way and how european countries or other countries are welcoming them or not it's a really good question so again it's a it, so it's complicated if you come if you come to the uk on your own steam basically um you then are put in a situation where you're you know set, settled into a hotel for months at a time while your case is decided and so it's really not a good way to seek asylum and if you seek asylum in different ways through sort of more official channels you know UNHCR or something like that then the process can also take a very 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 long time before you'd be brought here so I, my guess would be if people are coming now which I actually don't even know if they are I'd have to look um, it would just be a really long process about whether or not they would gain asylum here um, and some places are more generous than others so that is actually something that I think is also being discussed right now is for instance allowing people to work while they're waiting for their asylum cases to be decided because otherwise you're literally just sitting in a hotel room getting like five pounds a day waiting for your decision and that, again that can be drawn up for months and months so I think that it's not a good situation mm. to be in if people have family here so there's an Iranian community 
community in the UK and they may be allowed to you know come and stay with family at least for six months on a tourist visa so there's ways people can get around this but it's not a good not a good situation I can think of another one which which sort of also raises um, uh, kind of conflicts as to how people are characterized mm. um, there are lots of Russian men seeking to leave Russia mm-hmm. um, to avoid being conscripted um, they're crossing borders um, in ways that the country that they're leaving and the country that they're being received to may not actually want to happen so are they counted as migrants probably not are they um, but in a sense they're they're also entering this kind of territory of uncertainty violence conflict yeah. uncertainty about the families that stay behind similar kinds mm. of things if you if you no, start absolutely. to think about migrants in other parts of the world it's interesting it raises again that question of the distinctive vulnerabilities of different groups and men can be vulnerable they're just and they are vulnerable um, but they're vulnerable in distinct ways uh, being conscripted into a military service to go to an unjust war where your life will be in in danger is is something quite a distinctive threat to men around the world really and i think we also need to be more aware of, in general of of men's vulnerabilities and i guess i know this comes back this touches on what what renee was saying about white men's vulnerabilities mm-hmm. as well um they, they might be quite different but they're they're there in some respect and young men um and uh, w- when thinking about domestic abuse young men really i think it, we were going to talk about policy priorities at one point but i think talking about masculinity facing some of the really difficult experiences and repressions that young men go through just to become men in in our society is really important if we're going to address gender inequalities and it's not just as simple as protecting um, women from nasty men that, mm. that I just don't think that that's a description yeah. a, a, an accurate yeah. description of so, so a general so a general point would be People have very specific contexts, mm. needs, requirements, contexts they're coming from and going to. And, and generalising is probably a, a bad kind of starting point. I mean, kind of understanding actually what was what was happening. Mm. I, I remember meeting, um, I was in northern Norway at a Viking museum, Longhouse Museum, a famous one at Book. Um, and um, 100 meters long, one of the one of the biggest kind of surviving ones in the world. And there was a group of Afghan and Syrian young men being shown around, Norwegians accepted into Norway, all wearing super thin clothing in the middle of winter, and it was bitterly cold, um, and all with phones. Um, and they were there to kind of learn something of the kind of mm. history of the country that they were in, to to kind of develop an identity for the place, I presume. Um, but the thing that worried them most is that they were taking pictures with their phones, but they had nobody to send them to. And that was the thing that kind of hurt them the most. They could only share them, in a sense, mm-hmm. with each other because they didn't have links back to family and community and they didn't know where people were. So they were completely on their own. And yet they were being absorbed into a into a 
kind of generous, fairly mm. kind context within within Norway for, for, for migrants coming in. Well, yeah, this idea of like sort of young men making the journey first, because on one hand, it's they have their own unique vulnerabilities, but I think, and also the way people perceive them, because... Mm. Well, they're not really, they can't really be refugees because otherwise, why would so many young men be coming? And you heard of this a lot. You always hear this. Well, young men are usually the most mobile. So oftentimes they come first. They come first and they actually do have ties to family at home. They come first. They try and establish residency because of this horrible situation of sitting in hotels and waiting for a more stable place to live. And then they'll take that risk first and then bring family members with them that are following behind them. So there's this, I think, very much this perception that exactly that younger, able-bodied men are, are always economic migrants. And sometimes they are, but oftentimes they're fleeing for the same reasons, but because they are more economically viable and more mobile, they make the move first. So I think, you know, and the other thing too about, it, also this has been in the news a lot as well, is, oh, you know, are these people children or are they adults? And so there's a lot of work happening now to try and decide. And there's a lot of societal perception specifically about brown people, that brown people are older. So these are people who actually are children, should be treated as children and protected as children and treated as, you know, workers, economic migrants and adults. That really breaks my heart, that story. If uh, it was sort of very, yeah. very painful, exactly. I mean, and yet at the same time, something good. Because, yes, you know, yeah. you can imagine it's a lot worse for a lot of other people, That's particularly right. people in small boats in lots of parts of Europe, um, European edges. Um, so, yeah, and and, mm. and and it is that thing about kind of, you were saying earlier, Kat, about kind of people's values and the way they kind of see themselves and their identities, um, which, which is about kind of who we are in the world and what we want to be. But equally, we might be trying to escape something or needing to escape something to need help in that in that journey into the dark forest that lies ahead. Um, uh, and really what you would want would be institutions that are going to be at least kind of kind and welcoming, even if they can't, those countries mm -hmm. can't accommodate you. But there doesn't seem to be a reason why we shouldn't be kind in the first place. Absolutely. You know, and, and we wouldn't, why are we so obsessed with deciding whether it's a child or not a child, whether mm. this person in front of us, it's because we want to justify mm. treating them in a, in a way that you wouldn't ever want any child to be treated. But if that's what we're going to be doing to adults, Shouldn't we reflect a bit? If we were treating people with respect, if we were letting people work as many countries do while they're seeking asylum, putting them in decent housing and not holding them in detention centres, it wouldn't really matter so much if, if, if it was a few months out, if they were mm. judged a year younger or a year older, because the circumstances they'd be living mm. with wouldn't be dehumanising. So I think sometimes when, and again, it's the category is, are they a refugee or are they a migrant? Why are we so fixated on determining which category somebody falls into? It's it's only because we're, we're planning to treat at least one of those groups in not a very nice way. Yeah. yeah. And who's a victim and who's not a victim also in the cases that you're talking about, you know, only, mm. you know, women are potentially worthy of protection or can only be victims and not perpetrators. Yeah. Do you think we might be at a... At a in certain areas, perhaps specifically with migration, I can Im imagine this being perhaps less so for the for domestic violence. But let's kind of see how this plays out. That that we know that population structure in almost all countries in the world is changing super rapidly. 105 countries now with less than 2.1 children per mm. woman, um, a large number below 1.5. All those countries are going to shrink in size as they age. Uh, Japan will go from 
125 million to 80 million by the middle of this century if they do nothing mm. and japan has just set out on a big program of seeking to attract 350,000 mm. people to the country to work there now these are um you know kind of white collar workers mm. largely i think there would be this case to begin with but they've recognized that they've got a problem and so they're now turning to become active recruiters mm. into a country that was you know closed off for almost 300 years um uh, up until the 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 end of the um edo period in the 1800s and so that's a, r a remarkable change and that might change within well it certainly will change views that people have in the country of other people from other places mm. um but i wonder whether as we see these demographic transitions where whether we might start to see people thinking actually we really need people in general mm -hmm. to do other kinds of things let alone paint paintings and you know sort of design gardens and write poetry or whatever <laughs> i mean because this is often framed around kind of economic justifications isn't it we need mm. more doctors or engineers or or whatever and actually but actually you just need more people yeah that might change everything right there oh i mean i like your optimism <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not yes i i mean it could go completely south couldn't it no. equally but well but i mean but because yes so there there is research on this um you know most most of the people's opposition to migration is on uh, i think the economist used some word for this non-pecuniary or like basically non-economic reasons that concerned about cultural things um and and because indeed like look what just i mean look what's happening with nhs right now i mean we, we know we need foreign doctors and nurses we know we need tens people. of thousands yeah and we know we also need low wage workers we need people picking crops i mean that's well known and yet uh, support for migration is usually relatively low it bobbles along but it's you don't see a huge increase in support for it so it's um i yeah i I wonder, though, may maybe when we get to a certain point where it's really desperate, it, people will change their minds. But I, th it's um, yeah, it's an open question. It's an open uh, question. Yeah, yeah. that's very interesting. Well, if if you can imagine that, um, I mean, we can create a scenario where where people's views change because the state of the world changes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's entirely conceivable that the climate crisis might create millions of refugees from places mm -hmm. that are no longer viable to live in which you know might you know they might not be taken quite so kindly because people will will view that in a different kind of way but so we can imagine changes there but when it comes to something like domestic violence have have do we know whether things have changed for people mm. over time mm. has, uh, uh, do we make an assumption mm. that it is about uh, this proportion of women who suffer from domestic violence and it was the case 20 years ago 40 years ago 100 years ago i mean i'm asking for data that i know doesn't exist mm. but i just wonder what your what your thoughts are on those kind of big macro changes across generations and whether we in looking forward we might have more optimism or not I, it, it's very um it, it's difficult because even now measuring domestic violence is and domestic abuse is different from each country to each country the definition is different in each country and it 
in most countries it also includes family abuse so um, and this is more common than people think you know so we have siblings abusing each other being violent towards each other that can involve honor kind of of uh, abuse you know with older brothers uh, controlling sisters and so on um, but also child to parent violence and again this is something that is much more common and much more hidden actually because unsurprisingly people are unwilling to call the police on their own child um so domestic abuse as a category when you look at the national statistics in the uk it includes all of these other kinds of things as well mm. um and that differs from country to country so it's really difficult to say but what we can say is that in recent times the situation is not getting better in the uk mm. Yes, people are more willing to report than they used to be because social norms have changed. So where you you wouldn't report some so your partner being violent to you in the past because maybe that was just normal and that was seen as their right or okay they've had a few drinks or, or, or whatever. Now it is recognised as a crime as as something that shouldn't be done, but numbers have not gone down and unfortunately amongst young people. There is a lot of abuse uh, between partners and, you know, image abuse, intimate image abuse, like commonly known as revenge porn, but people sending, sharing sexual images and explicit images without the consent of other people. And um, also transactional kind of sex, you know, it's apparently, I've done some research recently on, on domestic abuse in young people, and they... Um, there seems to be an attitude that, you know, somebody bought you something, therefore they are owed mm -hmm. um, something in, in terms of sex. And unfortunately, the statistics show that risk is higher in younger people. So violence is worse and official assessments of, of the, the risk posed to the safety of the victim actually is worse from kind of 16 to 20 year olds than it is for for older people so i don't think we're in a, a good place with it despite gender norms changing because it's not only about gender norms it's also about respect for people and ideas about who owns what and rights to other people and so on so it's, and that diversity yeah. is a good thing and yes. you know just kind of central principles to the to the whole way we deal with other people yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, this, sorry, to, but I was thinking about this also when you were talking about dependency, for instance, amongst mm -hmm. dependent visa holders at the very beginning. Is um, so I know that actually, like, welfare support or sort of social support for, for instance, lone mothers has decreased. Uh, there's a lot more pressure to put people into work. People are women tend to be much worse off, for instance, following separation. And I wondered if, does that come up at all? Because when you're trying to think, how would you solve this problem if you feel like you're economically dependent on your partner, you can't leave them? And I didn't know, like, what role do you think, sort of, if, if you know, like, kind of the social benefit system has played in this? It's, it's definitely a major consideration uh, for why women uh, won't leave a, a, an abusive relationship it's children and financial yeah. dependence and often so often and I'm, I'm sure you may have heard you know the question of why doesn't she leave somebody is is treating you terribly they're hurting you they're controlling you why don't you just get up and leave there are no you're not imprisoned literally nobody is locking the door on you nobody is necessarily threatening to kill you if you walk away why would anybody put up with that but actually it it, it really is in the research there's a strong research base showing that because realistic choices um are, are not are not there and 
women are financially dependent on their on their partners and that makes them much more vulnerable to manipulation and control very good um well, it kind of mist hangs over the hills, doesn't it, with with some of this. We we kind of know stuff, but we don't know enough about trends. We know it's, we've got difficult mm. lives for people. We've got institutions that, that are changing a bit. Um, there's support for that, but then big macro uh, forces that are pulling in other kinds of directions. If you were to just have a little kind of cast forward, would there be a couple of big policy priorities that you would point towards that we could finish on could you tell a little bit of a of a kind of story you know if you were if you were saying where i would have hope it would be on such and such what 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 do you think would kind of come to mind i mean i think that there is a possibility for speaking of my own expertise of migration change now not potentially not for refugee or forced migration but in terms of facilitating guest worker programs making it easier for people to come making it easier for people to acquire citizenship to stay to get permanent residency i think that even if societal support for migration doesn't increase hugely certainly business recognizes that and also the government will recognize it and that's a place i think where we really could facilitate easier movement and i think that would be something that's possible and positive very good yeah exactly cat um i think well what i would like to see is a lot more work done preventive work with young people i think we can do that we've they're a captive audience in some way they have to go to school they're forced to be there so um that really is an opportunity to work with young people on healthy relationships what it means to respect each other and there is more and more work being done with young men um to help them negotiate their masculinity in a in a healthier way and i think really we need a lot of investment in that field i think that there's definitely hope in terms of people's understanding of domestic abuse and uh, that it's not just violence that it can be hard to leave that it's wrong to treat your partner in this way and in speaking about police i just leaps and bounds police have come in recent years they really are prioritizing domestic abuse now as much as we did terrorism five years ago or the more kind of sexy and attractive um crimes if you're a police officer we are seeing a real change there and i think that that's really important because that that 999 is is the number people call when they need help in an abusive relationship so we really do need that emergency service to be ready to respond very good. Thank you very much indeed. Rene Luther, Kat Hajimathu, thanks very much indeed for your, for your wise observations um, on this. You've been listening to Louder Than The Words, a podcast about ideas that improve lives. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can. <laughs>